0: All right, well, uh, let's get started here. We're going to keep on looking at our uh, difference uh, between law and gospel. We uh, we just finished up the first page here, so we'll just pick up with the, lo- the other side of the page. I also handed out a new sheet, which we'll uh, carry forward through this lesson if we get that far, and then through next week. We are going to have Bible study next week, but then after next week, we're going to discontinue through the season of Advent and after New Year's, so... You can come, but uh, and I guess we can chat if you want to, <laughs> but uh, won't have a formal study. All right, anyway, um, now we were looking last time, especially at the law. We talked about how there's three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There's the ceremonial that we're regulating the religious practices of the Jewish people and only of the pre-Jesus um, Jewish people and uh, the political laws which regulated the social life of the tribes and kingdom of Israel. Both of those no longer apply, even though there's tons of those laws written in the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus and Deuteronomy, because they were only for those people in that time. Uh, But then there was also the moral law, things like the Ten Commandments especially, which applied to all people, all times, all places. We saw, we went through a review of how the law has three basic uses that God puts it to. First of all, to curb our behavior so that all things being equal, we do less overtly bad things and more apparently good things um then there's the second use the mirror which shows us our sin it accuses us of breaking the law and condemns us as guilty against the law and the law always does that by the way there is never a time you will hear the law of god where if you're being brutally honest with yourself or rather you're letting god's law be brutally honest with you that you will ever say hey i did it that time perfectly it will always accuse you of not not actually as good as you think. In fact, still not keeping the law the right way. And then the third use, which especially applies to Christians, basically a guide. It shows you what is pleasing to God so that as you desire to serve God from a glad heart out of love for him for what he's done for you in Jesus, you look at the law and you say, that's how I'll serve God because this is what God says pleases him. All right, so that's that's where we were last time. And now uh, flip over, and I just want to start out with this little note about these uses of the law. When we talk about the use of the law, we don't just mean how say we intend to apply it. So no doubt when I write a sermon and I, I get to my uh, law section of the sermon, every every preacher, Lutheran preacher usually tries to do at least a little law in their sermons, where they either say one of they say what God intends. Or what the consequences of failure are. No doubt when we're writing these things, we have in our own head how we hope it will strike the people. Like, um, let's say, I notice people are not coming to church very often. So I might preach a little bit about how God actually commands you to come to church. And my hope is that it will curb some bad behavior of just overtly going away from church for months at a time, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how God is going to use the law. I might want to use it that way, but God does what he's going to do with the law. He might very well, what I intend to be merely guidance, he might turn around and use as an accusation against you. I might simply say like I did last Sunday, and so now we want to go and love and and proceed with love toward other people rather than fear. I might just be meaning that as a pastor and saying, now that you're a redeemed Christian, this is just how we want to please God. But you might hear that and say, boy, I've been driven by fear. I really, I really sin, I'm sinning here. God takes the law I might intend in the third use and he puts it to the second use. We're not entirely in control of the law. Uh, Same thing you can, you can, and by the way, the law almost never works in just one way purely. Uh, A good example of this is speed limit signs. Uh, Let's say you're driving down the highway at a good clip of 75 miles an hour, right? That's what everybody drives around here. Seems like some days. And then suddenly you notice you weren't paying that close of attention to the signs. You just notice you blazed past a sign that says 45 miles per hour. What do you do? What do you do if you're going 75 and suddenly you pass a 45 mile an hour sign and you oh, didn't realize?
1: I would slow down some. That's for sure. Oops.
0: Chances are, yeah, you're gonna slow down a little bit. Maybe you won't go down to 45. Maybe you'll overcorrect and go down to 35. I don't know, but chances are you're probably not gonna just keep on blazing at 75.
1: Somebody is behind you, so how quickly you can slow down. Well,
0: and what do you imagine you would feel in that situation? Somebody said, whoops. <laughs> right. Um, so on the one hand, you just recognize, oh, um, I am vastly going too fast here. Um, I need to correct. One feeling is I just need to correct the situation. Why? Well, you could probably imagine having a couple of feelings at the time. On the one hand, you probably start looking around for the police <laughs> because you recognize, oh, goodness, I broke the law. I could very well get a ticket. Second use of the law, it showed you that you were not paying attention. And you might feel guilty about it and scared about what's coming down on you, right? But at the same hand, you also slowed down. Maybe not because you think 45 is a good fair limit, just because you don't want the police to come down on you. First use of the law, your behavior is getting curbed. And maybe you're also just a really good, wholesome-minded citizen, and you really did want to follow the speed limit. You just did. You just didn't realize it changed. Now you know, and so you just want to try to do what you know you're supposed to do. Third use of the law. All at the same time, at the same person, possibly. Uh, The reason I point that out is just to say, you don't want to get into this idea that, uh, A, you can control when you're speaking the law to other people, how they're going to hear it. And, uh, B, it can and will probably hit in more than one way at any given time. So... Just be aware of that fact. Any thoughts about that before we move on?
1: We were traveling once, and it was a uh, we, it was on a Sunday and we had, had gone through a construction place, you know. I mean they were not working. They'd said, you know, 45 miles per hour or whatever it was. Sure. And I mean Dale was speeding right along, you know, and well, the, down the road a little bit the cops' office and he said, you know, uh, that said 45 and they said, yeah, but he said. You know, there's there's nobody else around. Nobody's working. it didn't make any difference. You know, weekend it was 45, the same as if it was a is a workday week. You know, you well, know, you know, next time slow down.
0: There you go. Yeah. He, he, he
1: didn't get it. He didn't get a ticket or anything for it. But oh know, well, that was nice, you know, I police. So, uh, yeah. uh, but uh, I mean, and there wasn't anybody else on the road. You know.
0: But. Well, sure, sure. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, I, uh, I, I'll creep up to five miles an hour over very often, f- figuring nobody's going to stop you for five miles an hour. Then there are times where I feel guilty about that, and I think, well, I know what I'm supposed to do, and then I'll take it back down to the speed limit. Then I'll get impatient again, and <laughs> I'll creep back up. Um,
1: I know one time, uh, I think uh, Scott and some of them were on their way to St. Louis because their grandchild was being taken to the hospital. My ambulance, and the ambulance driver told him, he said, don't try to keep up with me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, you know, I I will drop, <laughs> because it was, it wasn't a, you know, sort of an emergency, but he said, don't try to, don't, don't try to keep up with me. You, <laughs> <So, laughs> I guess you would think, okay, we're following that ambulance, we can, we can do the same as he's doing, you know, because he's, you know, but the, the, Every guy wouldn't know. Okay, this, this, these people in this car are family.
0: Sure, you know. You
2: know
1: so, but, uh,
0: yeah, no, I didn't hear that. Well, as we're uh, talking about these kinds of things too, it's also uh, good to bear in mind the limits of what the law should be used for and shouldn't be used for, what it can do and what it can't do. On the one hand, we just talked about the three uses, so all three of those things are what it can do. It can, in fact, um, discourage bad behavior uh, and promote. Externally good behavior. It certainly can accuse people of being lawbreakers, and it certainly can condemn them as guilty. It can also certainly inform us of what's good and appropriate. It's also worth saying some other effects that it can have. These are not what the law intends, but it can have these effects on people. It can make them uh, very secure, feel very good about themselves, and very proud. That is to say, if I'm not really thinking too hard about what God is commanding, and He says, something like, do not steal, I can console myself and say, well, I'm a lot better than Kathy over here, who, man, I saw when the offering plate passed her, and she pulled out a dollar or two. I'm a good person that God loves, because I do what God desires. Now, obviously, Kathy doesn't steal from the offering plate. I don't think. (laughs) Um... But you know what I'm talking about. You probably have all met people who get this holier-than-thou mentality because they believe they are really good people and uh, certainly better than other people they could point to. And therefore, they feel like God is okay with them. We talked about that quite a lot last week. It can go the other side of the coin, too, where what it does is when people hear it, um, rather than actually curb their behavior, uh, their sinful rebellion comes out. And they just get really, really angry about the law and throw and kind of spit in its face, so to speak. Every parent knows this, this I mean, this thing. When you say the rule, and just because you said the rule or you told your kid that they're, they got in trouble, does the kid always say, "Ah, oh, you're right, mom. I'm sorry." <laughs> no. Oftentimes, some obviously that happens, but as often, The kids start to throw a fit. They get mad at you for giving a stupid rule that's unfair. And how could you do that? And they go off the deep end of actually trying to do worse things. Or just thumb their nose at what your commands are. That happens too. Uh, Finally, another act uh, effect that can come is you can despair. I think we all know it's a very popular theme in our culture right now. Uh, One of the things behind the whole don't judge movement is because we're so sensitive to feeling shame and feeling that we're not good enough, right? Uh, That's what the law can also create, is despair in you. The feeling that you are never going to be good enough. God could not possibly love you. There is no hope for you. It's certainly an effect the law can bring. None of those three things are where the law is intending to bring you. Those are all, you might say, sinful reactions to the law. The despair one is close to an appropriate reaction because it's kind of the, the big form of the law convicts you as a sinner and declares you unworthy of, God's, of coming into God's presence, but then you take it so to heart that you just assume that God can never save you or love you or do anything for you so that it shuts you off to the gospel rather than prepares the way for it, which is what it's meant to do. Does that make sense? Now, I can't say that means, therefore, you should anticipate how a person's going to react and not apply the law, because I don't want you to get proud, Sam, so I'm not going to tell you what God says, lest you get proud. I I don't want you to thumb your nose at me, so I'm not going to preach a sermon that might hit home to you, Irma. And I don't want you to despair, Kathy, so I'm not going to preach that uh, God actually condemns sinners. You could try to do that, but you're not actually doing anyone any favors. You can't anticipate, you can't control how a person's going to react. You can only say what God actually says and hope that the Spirit will overcome those sinful responses to the law to get closer to a proper response to the law. Does that make sense? The potential for bad responses does not mean we don't preach the law. In fact, to those responses. They almost certainly need the law preached again, (laughs) just maybe in a slightly different form to address those particular sins. All right, but that being said, uh, it's also worth saying a word about what the law cannot do, because it's very easy for us to assume that it can do these things. First and foremost, the law cannot actually bring you salvation, and it cannot make you acceptable to God. Um, Romans 3.20. Somebody want to turn there and just read that quickly for us? We've read it before, but it's it's a very straightforward statement here.
1: Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of
2: sin.
0: So, how many people can get declared righteous? How many people can will God look at and say, You are a good person by doing what the law commands. What does this verse say? Nobody. None. Zero. Zilch no one will be declared good by fulfilling the law not because the law not because the law has some deficiency but because people are deficient because you will always be a sinner who does not keep the law and therefore the law is not going is only going to ever be able to condemn you rather than bring you salvation so It will never let you stand before God. And I I think we all know, we've talked about this in our last series, there are plenty of people who miss that point. They honestly believe, I'm a good person, God's okay with me, because I'm a good person. I try pretty hard, I fake mistakes, I do some bad things occasionally, but by and large, I keep the law, the law, my good morality, that's my hope. The law cannot do that, and therefore morality cannot do that. By the same token, um, the law cannot actually reform a sinner into a saint. Um, What we mean by that is the law, no matter how many times you preach it, no matter how true it is that the law can curb your overtly evil behavior and promote good external behavior, Um, that is to say the speed limit sign can, in fact, make you stop going 75, (laughs) and move you to go closer to 45, right? It cannot necessarily reform your heart to be somebody who so loves and respects the government, the civil authorities, the police, and everyone driving around you that you will willingly and gladly do that 45 miles per hour from the depths of your heart. You might do it on the surface, maybe even a bit below the surface, but it can't, the law itself can't make you into a perfectly good person who does what you're doing from proper motives. Or to put it the way our confessions put it, the law can't make you do truly good works that proceed from a genuine fear and love and trust of God. Because the law can't make you have a genuine love or fear or trust of God. It's just beyond the law's capacity. That's, uh, again, goes back to What we just read, for one thing, if no one will be declared righteous by virtue of the law, how will the law actually make you into a righteous person? It just can't do that. It's not able to. Um, Go to Romans 7, 10, 18, for that matter. 7, 10 through 18, sorry. I
2: found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seized the opportunity enforced by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me by no means, but in order that sin might be recognized, that sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that law is spiritual, But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do
0: what is good, but I cannot carry out. All right. Paul very uh, blatantly says there, The law, no doubt, is good. It commands good and holy things. But what is the result of all those commands? Does it work good and holy things in me? No, what it works is death in me. Why? Because the law brings me to death? No, but the sin within me brings death. Um, there is nothing good that dwells in me. Um, The law is there. It's good. It's telling me what to do. But, as Paul says, I can't carry it out. Even though it's hammered right there in front of me, I can't make myself, and the law certainly by its commands can't draw forth from me the kind of obedience it requires. I'm incapable of it, and so the law, which commands me to be capable of it, can't make me capable of it. Now, by the way, I do want to make one quick clarification. When we're talking here, uh, we are we're wanting to be very clear that when we say it can't make a good, obedient person, we especially mean in our relationship to God. Um, the law, as we've talked about before, can, in fact, touch pretty deeply our relationships to one another. I mean, one of the whole reasons I discipline my children, that's all the law, by, by and large, when I'm disciplining my children, telling them what's good, what's bad, Um, talking them through what's good choices and why they're bad choices, how we should love and respect each other, that actually does cultivate a certain love and respect towards other people, right? Um, So the law can actually change our hearts to a certain degree towards one another and towards what we consider good or bad decisions and how we make them. But in terms of our actual knowledge, fear, and love and trust of God, It is simply incapable of doing that, because our relationship to God is simply of a whole different order, and uh, it's beyond us and our capacities to be reformed in that way by our efforts to obey some kind of external standard. Does that make sense? This is just what scriptures say very frequently. One thing that's worth knowing um, is that it is almost useless to try to make a person into a Christian— by preaching the law at them, or make them a better Christian by only preaching the law at them. I'm not going to make you somebody who is truly glad to be in church by telling you God commands that you need to be in church. I might get you into church.
1: Sometimes you scare them off if you just preach the law
0: enough. Well, and if you're if you're only preaching the law, you might very well scare. Well, you might scare them off anyway, even if you do the right thing, because people are sinners. But if you're only preaching the law, they have nothing really to hope in. They only have the hope that they can reform themselves, which is a false hope. But uh, point being, I can't make them actually love the Word of God by telling them you're supposed to love the Word of God, right? Um, The law can't do that work. And so even though it's very tempting for pastors, for parents, for friends to try to whip people into proper shape solely through commands, morality, and so forth. At the end of the day, you're only going to go so far, and it's nowhere near far enough. Which brings us to what we need to talk about today, the main topic of today, 20 minutes into our lesson. The gospel and what it offers, this very different word than the law that does very different things than the law. Now let's talk about what the gospel is. First of all, the word itself literally means good news, the Greek word euangelion. Um, It's specifically not just any good news. If you want to go into the uh, original usage, it's kind of like um, after a, a king would win a battle or a government would win a battle, the general or the king wouldn't necessarily know how the battle went because, you know, we don't have drones on the ground, cameras on the ground, instant cell phones. So they would send the general at the time, who was overseeing the battle, would send a runner back to the king. He would bring euangelion. good news that the foe was defeated, the battle went well. That's the original meaning of the word. But um, good news is a good, uh, solid, rough and ready translation of the word itself. What does the gospel teach us? Well, let's look at this. If we're saying it's something different, let's work through some of these verses. Obviously, there are tons we could go to, but these are good illustrations. Somebody want to go to John 1, 1 John 1. Yeah, let me talk again. First John 4,
1: 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live
0: through him. All right. According to that, what is this good news telling us? God's love. Okay, God's love. And how is God's love shown, especially in according to this? Through Jesus. God's love through Jesus. And what is Jesus, how did, how did Jesus show God's love? What did he do? What did God do with Jesus,
1: specifically here? He sent his one and only son, into the world that we might
0: live through Him. Live through Him. First of all, the gospel teaches us that God sent Jesus so that we'll live through Jesus. By the way, uh, we'll have a little uh, sidebar here of what the law teaches us. The law teaches us you live by doing those things it requires. Here, scripture is telling us, but God has said that. Uh, Here's some very different, very good news. God sent Jesus so that you'll live through Jesus, not by doing a law. Let's go John 3.16. You may have heard this one before.
2: Yeah. For, God, for God so loved the world that he gave his old, one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life.
0: All right. What is the promises there? Or what is the what is scripture teaching us there on a simple level?
1: Believe you'll have eternal life. All right,
0: so the gospel tells us um, that if you believe in Jesus, what you have is uh, you won't perish, you won't be condemned, but you will live forever. So it's not only that we'll live through him, but by faith in Jesus, you will both escape condemnation and you will live forever. So clarifies that. The law, by the way, says, um, makes a threat, you fail, you die. You succeed, you live forever. Very different kinds of promises attached to the law. They got this, this good news through Jesus is that simply by trusting him, you won't die, but you'll live. No threat, by the way, implied there. The law says if you fail to live this way, you die forever. If you succeed in doing this yourself and living this way, you'll live forever. Very different word again. Alright, let's go to Romans 1:16.
1: I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile.
0: Alright. What um what does the Apostle Paul call the gospel here? Good news. Okay. On the one hand, yeah, he calls it good news. This is not bad news that you have to worry and fret over. And what is this good
2: news? Do It's the power of salvation. Power
0: of God to give, that gives salvation. So here, um, again, let's just for comparison's sake, what the law says is, um, by the way, uh, does the law give you the power to do what it requires? No, we just read it does not have the power to do that. The power has to come from you. And you have to have it in yourself, and if you don't have it in yourself, well, that's the problem. You failed. It cannot. The, God, the law does not give that which is required for you to be saved by it, which is actual obedience from your heart. The gospel, however, power comes in the gospel from God to actually do the deed and work the salvation that it promises. So, on the one hand, the gospel is able to perform the things that the law does not seek to perform. The gospel says God is not only going to do, send Jesus for you, it also, in the gospel itself, is the power for you to be saved by Jesus' work. Traditionally, we Lutherans like to say um, the word of God works the faith that it requires. The law does not and cannot work the obedience it requires. The gospel does work the faith that um, it requires. All right, let's do uh, one more here. Romans 5, 6 through 8.
1: For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to eat and die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
0: All right, so uh, law, by the way, or it says it comes and gives its promises, particularly to a very select group of people, those who obey and are righteous and do what it commands. Who did Jesus come and die for, according to Paul? Everyone ungodly. <laughs> Everyone, yes and specifically, the ungodly, the sinners. The promises of the law only come to the good, the not sinful. Do this and you will live. The gospel comes to people, as Christ comes to do this victory and give it to us, and the message comes to people who aren't good, who are ungodly, who are sinful, who are condemned by the law. So it comes to a very different class of people. And like uh, Irma said, we'll just fill it out since uh, technically Paul didn't overtly say there that he died for all people. Um, we'll verse The same point gets made in 1 John. I'll just quick turn there. Chapter 1, where uh, John writes, or chapter 2. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So again, as uh, Irma pointed out, this news is properly for, that is to say, Christ came to die for sinners, um, as Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, since we are all ungodly. Turns out, God showed his love in this, that he came and died for all people, or as John 3.16 says, for the world. So, you can already see right off the bat, just by this little comparison, the gospel makes some very different promises than the law. Things that if you weren't thinking in terms of this law-gospel distinction, you might just assume, well, the scripture is just flatly contradicting itself. Because on the one hand, there's all kinds of verses we've already looked at, that point out what the law says, what it threatens, what it promises, um, and how uh, we get to heaven by doing it. But on the other hand, it turns around and also says, hey, nobody's doing that, because nobody can. Uh, And then teaches this very different thing about how sinners, ungodly, unworthy, unrighteous people, do still come to heaven through Jesus and faith in him. And by the way, God also gives the power to believe, um, through the gospel, and uh, especially comes and saves precisely the ungodly and the sinful, and not the righteous and the good. Or as Jesus put it to those Pharisees, "I have not come; it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it is the sick." Now, off the bat, you can already start talk about some several uh, things about how this has some immediate implications for our own personal life, because one of the weird things that happens among Christians. Weird because, as Kathy likes to point out, the devil is never not at work. And he is very good at convincing us of all the wrong things and warring against the kind of faith in the gospel that we have. Uh, The devil somehow manages to convince us that because now that we have the gospel and are, as we'll see in a minute, actually starting to live a better life, we turn around and we start looking down on all those ungodly sinners out there as, boy. I'm glad I'm not like them. Boy, what a wreck of a person. I hope they never come here. I hope I never have to deal with that person. In fact, I'm not going to deal with a person like that because they're just awful. (laughs) Unlike me, good, solid Christian. The gospel says exactly the opposite of all that. No, you're, you're a pretty trashy person yourself, as it turns out, um, just like that person is. And your uh, faith, your fellowship in the church, the church is not the country club of good people. It's the hospital for sinners, of whom you, if Paul can say it, you can certainly say it, are the foremost. <laughs> so it's good to remember What the gospel actually says and what the basis of our standing before God actually is. To distinguish that is to say very sharply between the law on the one hand and the gospel on the other. Never to make the law the basis by which we judge ourselves before God's sight as though we're worthy or better or good to him. But only to judge ourselves in God's sight as acceptable by the gospel. But nevertheless, use the law to remind ourselves, as God very much says, of what we should be doing to, be ple- to please him in our life, not to stand before him on the judgment, but to please him in this life, um, and also to remind ourselves and be reminded by him that we are unworthy sinners who only stand by the gospel. We need to have both going almost all the time, and we need to keep them straight, or we start going into some very bad territory very, very fast, both towards ourselves and certainly towards other people. All right, let's uh, linger for a moment on the difference between these two. We can skip, uh, I think we'll just skip for the time being, to the difference between law and gospel part of A and B, just because we, I kind of compass those all around. And I'll just point out what the catechism says as kind of a summary about this. Back in your catechism days, from uh, confirmation, by the way, a good practice every once in a while, maybe every year or so, just read through your catechism again. It's a great reminder of what the basics of our faith really are, because it's so easy to get lost in so-called deeper waters that we forget the basics, or to just forget them in general, and start not being guided by them. But from the Catechism, this is just basically how it summarizes Scripture, which is what we've been saying. The law teaches what we are to do and not do. The Gospel, on the other hand, teaches what God has done and does for our salvation. So right off the bat, you know, if you're hearing something that says about what you need to do, you are probably dealing with something about the law. If you're talking about something that God does for you specifically to save, redeem, uphold, sustain you, you are almost certainly hearing something about the gospel. By the same token, the law is meant to show us our sin and God's wrath against sin. By the way, the gospel does not say God does not hate sin. Nowhere does the gospel imply that. God hates sin. God is angry at sin. God wants to punish sin and remove evil from his sight. He doesn't tolerate it. That's what the law overtly tells us. Both that we are sinners and how much God hates and condemns sinfulness. It's bad. It's destructive. It's evil. God doesn't put up with it. Even when he forgives it, it's still evil. It still needed forgiveness. It didn't need a, Ha, that's okay. Come just as you are. You're fine. Or it's evil and all... Now, um, the gospel doesn't show you that your sin was no big deal. The gospel shows your Savior. If sin wasn't the big deal, by the way, you wouldn't need to be saved from it. Um, so the gospel shows you your Savior, whereas the law shows you your sin. It also has a difference in who it's actually meant to be preached for. While Jesus has died for all people, not everyone is prepared to hear it. Um... We can say this, I didn't, we didn't go to specific Chris, or scripture passages about this, but we can point this out by simply pointing out how in all of the epistles, Paul doesn't only talk about the gospel to everyone. Um, he actually does talk about the law to condemn sinners and even to recommend excluding certain kinds of sinners, people who willfully, very um, intentionally persist in things that are directly against law, as not... Of the church, not part of the redeemed. Um, Why does he do that? Well, because the gospel, while it's true Jesus died even for them, those people aren't in a position where they're actually prepared by God to hear it. They will misuse the message of the gospel to give themselves license to sin rather than to have trust in God's forgiveness. But anyway. Um, We'll come to that. We can talk about that more in a minute, but just let me get this on the board. The law is meant to be shared with all people, but especially impenitent. That is, people who are secure in their sins, who are okay with their sinfulness. That everybody needs to hear the law, including Christians, by the way, good, stout Christians, because one of the uses of the law, again, is what? To guide us to know what actually pleases God. Um, Again, not to convict us in that sense, but just to say, hey, you want to know how to please God? This is how you do it. So everyone needs to hear the law. On the same hand, by the way, Christians are still sinners. They still need to be shown their sin and convicted. Christians also are given to bad behaviors that need to be curbed. So all three uses of the law still apply to both believers and unbelievers, to both penitent and impenitent, but it especially needs to be preached to the impenitent to people who are going directly against the will of God and who are okay with it or ignorant of it. Make sense? The gospel is to be preached to those who are troubled by their sins. Um, You can explain this on a pretty easy psychological basis. If I go to a kid, if Patrick, for instance, is just slapping Thomas upside the face all the time, and the word I have for him is, God, Jesus died for you. He, he loves you. You're accepted. Do you think, A, that uh, Patrick will see something wrong with what he's doing? <laughs> no, he'll probably be confirmed And hey, it doesn't matter if I keep slapping Pat Thomas in the face. Life is good. B, he probably will despise Christ because he won't recognize— this is the biggest issue, not stopping the sin, but the biggest issue is that. You don't recognize what your Savior is if you don't recognize the situation you need to be saved from. The bigger problem with Patrick slapping Thomas in the face and me speaking the gospel to him is that Patrick hasn't realized at that moment that he's actually needing salvation. And so when he hears, Christ saves you, (laughs) okay, great. I didn't have, what was I doing wrong that I needed saving from? Thanks, Jesus, I guess. Now let me get on with my life. Another good comparison is if a person doesn't know they have cancer, are they really going to be all that concerned or appreciative or even make use of the doctor who comes saying, hey, I've got a chemotherapy plan for you? No, that person will probably say, gee, thanks, (laughs) but no thanks, and then carry on as if they didn't have cancer. They need to see what their situation is, and their need for salvation before they will grab hold of their Savior and find confidence in him. So the gospel is preached to those who recognize they need a Savior, not to those who don't think they need one in the first place. Make sense? Um, Again, that doesn't say that Christ didn't actually die for everybody, that he only died for the penitent or the people troubled. It's to say that they won't really appreciate or receive the blessing until they recognize that they need the blessing. So, those are the three big differences in the Long Gospel. I mean, we could talk about others, but these are the good, rough and ready ones that we give to our confirmation students that are, are really helpful for starting to deal with things. One last thing then, here. We already talked about what the law is able to do to people. Let's talk about what the gospel does to people then, when, it's, when it comes to them um, with all of its promises and sweetness. On the one hand, the gospel actually does forgive sins. It justifies people. It makes them acceptable, white, clean in God's eyes. Uh, So there is a huge thing that it actually does. So for instance, when you uh, go up to the Lord's Supper and receive the body and blood of Christ, what is Christ's promise associated with? This is the blood of the covenant which is given for you for the forgiveness of sins. It actually forgives your sins. When the pastor is up there saying, "...in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins." He's saying, by the command. Which command? Well, a command that goes back to John, where Jesus says, Whose ever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. The gospel actually does what it says. It forgives you. It rescues you. It saves you. It gives you life. Big deal. Secondarily, or I shouldn't say secondarily, um, one of the things that therefore then works is faith in you. By hearing the promises of God, by having God actually encounter you with forgiveness and justification, what it does is it elicits faith in your heart. Um, One of the examples I like to give to uh, my confirmation kids is what happens to me when my parents promised me, when I was eight years old, they said, we're going to Disneyland this summer. What happened in my heart and my mind? I started to believe that I'm going to Disneyland that summer. The promise, this is what will happen, gave me the confidence and the certainty, the faith, that this is what is going to happen. It will be just as they said. If they didn't say that, do you think I likely would have believed that I was going to Disneyland that summer? Mm, Probably not. I I knew my family. I wasn't expecting that suddenly out of the blue we'd be going to Disneyland. Uh, Without the promise actually coming, without the gospel actually being preached... Faith doesn't have anything to grab hold of. The promise creates the faith that trusts it. Um, By the same token, if they only came and said something like, well, if you're good, we'll go to Disneyland this summer. Now, I may or may not have been very confident about my prospects of going to Disneyland then. Because while I would be hopeful, I would be very far less than certain because now it's on me and the condition that I do the right stuff, even if they said, if we have the finances, we'll go, I still would have been somewhat up in the air because there's still a condition about whether they're going to feel they can do it or not. Faith in God comes by and requires the firm and unshakable promise, you will be saved because I will save you. I died for you. I've forgiven you. I'm forgiving you now and again. Therefore, you have every reason to believe it. And you do believe it. That's how the Holy Spirit works, faith. Um, The gospel does it. Thirdly, something very important to remember. We said before that the 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 law cannot create the kind of person it commands, right? Just by saying, love God, do you magically start to love God? Can you sit down in your study and say,
1: love
0: God? there now I did it. <laughs> no, the law can't create actual fear, love and trust of God. It only requires it. Um but the gospel actually does make you new. It actually changes you. It's the thing that gives you the power to start fulfilling the law. So I can preach all I want, get to church God commands it, or um Love your wife, God commands it. Stay faithful to your wife, God commands it. Don't beat your children, God commands it. And it might keep their uh, their external behaviors more or less in thought, but it won't actually breed in them a true love and respect and devotion to God, and out of that devotion to God, a devotion to these other people and these other activities because it devotes them to God. Uh, it just won't. But when they, if you preach to them what God has done for him, that he has forgiven your sins, he has died to give you eternal life, and they start to actually believe God, naturally they'll start to trust God, and they'll also start to love God. The gospel creates a heart that does love God, and that love starts to to actually try to do the law and genuinely start to fulfill it. So if you want good, solid Christians, um, you don't just preach the law at them you want good-behaving Christians, you don't just preach the law at them. Of course, you will preach the law. But it's the gospel that actually works the new creation of the heart that wants to, desires, and is actually limitedly capable of doing anything the law commands. So these are very different things that the law or that the gospel works that the law simply could never work. In fact, it's almost the opposite of everything the law can work. Now, that might sound all pretty clear on paper. Uh, like we said, this is, this is not complicated stuff. I can get my uh, confirmation kids, fifth through, uh, or sixth through eighth grade, to uh, understand and parrot back to me basically all of this. And on paper, if I give them various statements, is this one law, is this one gospel, you know what? They can fairly reliably tell me correctly. Yep, that one's law, that one's gospel. How do I know? Well, that one says you shall, so that's law. Oh, this one threatens a, uh, a punishment, that's law. Oh, this one says God loves me, that's gospel. This one says forgiveness. It's easy to do on paper. This actually gets very hard when we get down to the application of it, particularly in our own lives and on the lives of other people. Uh, one thing, because, well... The devil is hard at work trying to confuse our minds and put the law where the gospel should be, or the gospel where the law should be, Um, and partly because we're sinners. We like the idea of the law. It makes sense to us because the law says you, you should, and then we say, hey, I can. I don't even need God. I can be like God and make myself good or evil. Very hard to do on practice so let's dig into we'll we'll move into part three well actually we'll just quit early today and we'll pick up part three next time um where we dig into the how we actually get down to distinguishing this and uh why it matters and what ways we fail but let's close with the lord's prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name Thy thy kingdom come